strap in. Here we go. John 17, verse 1. Grab your Bible. We got places to go today, things to do today. John 17, 1. And without any further ado, I'm going to just read this. We're doing the whole chapter of John 17 this morning. Let's read it. I'm going to read it for you now. It's also on the screen here. It says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be what? one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That would be Judas. We read about him a few chapters ago that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Have you heard that expression repeated a few times already so far? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be, what? One, there it is again, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world." O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. How's that for a section of text, right? We're in it this morning. That chapter right there, John 17, that commonly is referred to by a title. Do you guys know what that chapter is often referred to as? A little quiz for you. It's called 
the high priestly prayer. Anybody heard of the high priestly prayer before? Well, you have now because we just read it. Now, interestingly, the words high priestly prayer, you'll notice they weren't in that text anywhere that we just read. Did you see high priestly prayer anywhere in there? No, they're not in there. That's a title that's been kind of given to it later. And matter of fact, just a fun little thing for you. When you're reading your Bible, most of us have Bibles that have titles over certain sections. Anybody have a Bible like that? Got headings? How many of you have a Bible that's got chapter numbers and verse numbers? Probably all of you, right? Those are things that were added in later after the fact. Now, that's not the scriptures being added to, right? We're warned like, hey, don't add anything to this word. That's not what that is. That's just helping us organize things better and be able to find our place better. But that title, even though it was added later, the high priestly prayer, it's pretty accurate for what we just read. So first you need to understand that word priest. Priest, you can trace all the way back into the Old Testament in the Bible. And priests were people who would stand in the gap between God and people. They were mediators between people and God. See, God is holy, perfect, sinless, blameless, righteous. We are pretty much the opposite of all of those things, right? We are sinful. We are not holy in and of ourselves. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. But yet God has always desired to have a relationship with his people. He's desired to have a relationship with you. So therefore the priests come in. They would stand in the gap between the holy God and the unholy people. They would make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. They would make atonement, that means payment, for the sins of the people to God. And Jesus, it says in other places in the scriptures, book of Hebrews, he's our great high priest. He's a priest in that he stands in the gap for us between us and God. He is our mediator between us and God. He came from God to the earth and he sacrificed his life. Like a priest would make sacrifices. Jesus, through his death on the cross, made atonement, payment for our sin. Right? Do you see the connection there? Heads nodding. Yep, okay. And it says that he's our, he's our, I don't know why that's doing that. Maybe the Lord's trying to tell me something. He's our high priest. In other words, he's the best. He's the greatest. We don't need anyone other than Jesus because he's the greatest that there is. So our high priest, Jesus, he makes this prayer. All of what we read in John 17 right there is a prayer that Jesus is making. And it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that's recorded anywhere. That tells us something. It's important, right? And it is taking place at this critical moment before Jesus goes to the cross. As we've talked about, this is happening the night before he dies in our place for our sin. And he knows that it's coming. And yet he stops and he makes this prayer, which is remarkable. And it's a prayer of request. How many of you know there's different kinds of prayers that you can pray? Anybody know that? Two of you know it, the rest of you. Okay, we gotta have a different sermon today then. There's different kinds of prayers that you can make. There's prayers of thanksgiving. There's prayers of adoration and praise to God. There's prayers of repentance and lamentation. And there's prayers of request, of asking for things. That's what this one is here. And this prayer that Jesus, our high priest, makes, you can break it down into two main parts. The first part is this. Jesus is making a prayer for himself. So let's talk about that one first. Jesus prays here for himself. Right off the bat, you need to understand it's not automatically wrong for you to pray for yourself. 
which is good. I've actually heard some of you guys say, yeah, I'll pray for you, but I don't pray for myself. And you know what I would say to you if you say that? I would say, why not? Jesus prayed for himself. Are you saying you're smarter than Jesus? You know better than Jesus? I don't think so. Be careful how you answer that, right? Jesus did it, so therefore we can do it. It's not automatically wrong to pray for yourself. Now, you can pray for yourself wrongly. If you pray with selfishness or the wrong kind of heart or you've got you know, a selfish agenda or whatever, yeah, that's not great. But it's, not, it, it, it's the heart in that. It's the selfish heart in that. But in and of itself, praying for yourself is not wrong. Jesus prays for himself here. He does, I'm gonna give you a whole bunch of nuts and bolts on this and then we're gonna bring it all together, okay? In verse four, Jesus is praying. He says, Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Pause there a sec. Sidebar. Let's take a sidebar. Have you ever read that verse and thought, that kind of sounds a little weird. Jesus is saying, I've accomplished the work you sent me to do, but this is before he went to the cross, which is the ultimate work that he was sent to do. Do you ever think that was weird? I have. And the best explanation that I can give on that is a lot of people say it this way. Jesus, through all the course of his life to this point, he was actively doing things, healing, teaching, speaking, building up, pronouncing the kingdom, all kinds of things. They were active actions that Jesus was doing. But when he went to the cross, that was something that was done to him, something passive. And yes, he allowed it to happen and he knew it was gonna happen, but but that was more of a passive act of letting something be done to him. So when he says, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do, he's not... Uh, getting himself confused or contradicting or anything. Um, So we can kind of look at it that way. Unsidebar, back on the bus. Jesus also prays, verse six, he says, Father, I have manifested your name to those whom you have given me. So Jesus, through his life and ministry, he showed people to the Father. He pointed people to the Father. Verse eight, he says, I gave them the words that you gave me. Right, we've read many times in the Gospel of John so far, Jesus says things like, I don't speak on my own authority. I speak only what the Father is doing and what he tells me to speak. There it is again. In verse 12, he's talking about his disciples. He says, I've kept them in your name. I've guarded them. He's been faithful all through this. There's our nuts and bolts. Let's sum this up, okay? It all comes back to verse one, John 17, one. Jesus says, Father, glorify your son so that the Son may glorify you. What he is saying there, by the way, that word glorify, that's honor, that's make much of, make a big deal about. Jesus, what he's saying there is in everything that I've done in my life in ministry, be glorified, Heavenly Father. And what's so critically key in there is that we ought to take the same heart in our lives as well. Yes, God gives us things to do. He's given you the capacity to do maybe great things in your life and rack up all kinds of accomplishments and do wonderful things and make a difference. But listen to me, your life, it's not about you. It's about the glory of God. You need to know something today. That is literally the reason you were created. It's not just to eat, drink, and be merry. Your life is about bringing glory to God. Your life, the reason you are on this rock spinning around the sun is to bring glory to God in all that you say and all that you do in all areas of your life. And Jesus is reminding us and showing that to us here. Yes, Jesus has done amazing things, but he says, Father, be glorified. I don't know what kind of things you've done in your life, but it ought to be your heart and my heart to say, Father, be glorified. 
Jesus, be glorified. It's not about me. It's about you. Less of me, more of you. Because when we take on that posture in our hearts, that helps us. That helps prevent against us being prideful. And wow, look at how much I've done. Again, you maybe have done some great things in your life, but what's way more important than that is all of the great things that God has done in and through your life. Makes all the difference. So I would ask you for an internal answer only. How's your heart on that? How's your prayer life on that? Is that how you pray? Father, be glorified. Sometimes maybe, sometimes I don't know. But there's the heart. There's Jesus modeling it for us. That needs to be in our vocabulary. Making sense so far? Two of you, it's making sense. How about the rest of you? Okay. That's Jesus' prayer for himself. Let's move on to the big meat of this text then. It's Jesus' prayer for us. That sentence right there, you could blow over that so easily, but you need to understand, Jesus prayed for you. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, God eternal, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, he prayed this for you. Let that not be lost how significant that is. Your life matters for something. Oh, God doesn't even care. Oh, nobody cares. Yes, God cares. Jesus prayed a whole bunch of things for you, for you. And I, I'm gonna prove to you that it's for you and that he did this. Verse nine to 11 in this text, he literally says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So this is specifically for Christians too. If you're a Christian, Jesus prayed this over you. He says, for they are yours. All mine are yours. Yours are mine. I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, right? Jesus is leaving. He's praying before he goes to the cross and gives his life and dies for us. But they are in the world. We're still in the world. We need the prayer. And I am coming to you, Jesus says. Now, if you say, well, I think that's mostly just talking about the disciples that were right there with him. Yes, they are immediately in context there. But look at verse 20. If you want to argue with me on that one, Jesus says, I do not ask for these, his disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're a Christian, guess what? That includes you 2,000 years later. Pretty cool, right? Jesus prayed this prayer 2,000 stinking years ago, and it's still effectual in our lives today. I think that's remarkable. So what we're going to do, we're going to blast through this. I got nine things. It's a lot of things, but this is a big prayer. I got nine things for you that Jesus prayed for you about. And I don't know who each of these are for. I'm trusting they're for somebody in the house today. So let's go. Jesus' prayer for us. Number one, Jesus prayed that we would know what it means to truly live. I love that, right? Jesus said in another place, John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and life to the full, life abundantly, it matters, right? Like Jesus has something for us, yes, in eternity, but for now as well. And I love this. Verse three in our text, you see it on the screen. I have been like yammering on about John 17, three for like a year and a half. And finally, thank the Lord, we're in John 17, three now. Good land. 
What a verse, though. Look what he says. This is eternal life that they what? Know you, the, one, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The key word in there is know, that they know you. See, with eternal life, I don't know if you're anything like me, through a lot of my upbringing, I would think of eternal life only and really in terms of the passage of time, right? It's, it's, it's a length of time. Like as a Christian, uh, my life will come to an end here. I'll go to be with Jesus and then my eternal life will start and it's all just about how long it is, which is forever, which is a really long time. And yes, that is true. It does involve the passage of time, but eternal life is so much bigger than that. It also speaks to a quality of life. And Jesus right here says, this is eternal life. This is the substance, the essence, the hallmark of eternal life that we know God. Answer me this, friends. It's not, it's not a trick question. Are we going to know God in our next life? Yes, it's going to be awesome. Answer me this though. Can we know God in this life? Yes, we can. Therefore, eternal life is something that begins or can begin now and it carries on into our next life. And yes, it's going to be fully realized and fully actualized in our next life. But let it begin now as well. We can know God now. And by the way, in case there's any confusion on the way to get this eternal life, it's by writing a really big check and giving it to the roof campaign. No, no. It's about being really, really a good person and doing more good than bad, right? That must be it. No. It must be about going to church. If my church attendance is good enough, I'll get the eternal life, right? No. Now, the eternal life only comes when your sins are forgiven and when you're born again in Jesus Christ. You were made by God and for God. You're supposed to have a relationship with God. That's the life you were created to live. But our sin has separated us from God. It's eliminated the possibility of us just waltzing in to, to a relationship with him. But Jesus Christ has come to bridge the gap, to die in your place, to pay for your sins so that your debt could be wiped away, so that that wall of hostility could come down, so that you could be forgiven and set free and walk boldly into relationship with God, which is the place you were supposed to occupy the whole time. You only can know eternal life in this life and the next life by putting your trust and your faith and your confidence in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sin and surrendering to him and being raised to walk in newness of life in him. You gotta be born again, amen? amen. That's where it is. So that's how you get it. Now, something else involved in this eternal life. I love that verse two is in here. Jesus talks about how he has been given authority over all flesh. Somebody say authority. I, oh, that, this one gets stuck on us sometimes. Sometimes we think, okay, I've accepted Jesus. I'm great. I'm good. I'm saved. And I'm just going to continue living my life however I want because I'm good. And I got my get out of jail free card and I'm good to go, right? Not so. Part of this eternal life is you submitting yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ. It's not you here and Jesus here. So often we get that order wrong. I want to be on the top of the heap. I want to sit on the throne. Get off it. 
Get over yourself. Jesus is king. Jesus is on the throne. And we need to humble ourselves under his authority because that is where the true life comes in. Yes, give him thanks. He's our king. Let's go. Come on. Yes. So, let me sum all that up. If you go through your life and you just don't believe in God, you don't believe in Jesus, it's just a bunch of hogwash, whatever, you're missing out. You're missing the point. You need Jesus. Eternal life is a real thing, and it's found in him. Now, if you go through your life only knowing about Jesus, oh, sometimes we just think, oh, I'll fill my head with knowledge about him, facts about him. Hey, that's great, but if that's all you got, you're missing out. You're missing the point. It's about knowing him personally and relationally. If you go through your life and you say, yeah, I affirm all this Jesus stuff, sounds great, praise the Lord, yeah, 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 but you never humble yourself under his authority, you're still missing out and you're missing the point. Eternal life is when Jesus is here and we are here and we're saved in him and we walk with him in relationship with him. That one makes sense? Let's roll on. Jesus wants us to know what it means to truly live. And by the way, I know some of you could testify to that. In your life, when you finally started getting onto that program, maybe your life wasn't perfect, but it changed you. And you do know what it means to truly live. So kudos to you. Next one is this. Jesus prayed that we would keep walking with him. Keep walking. See, in verse 11, he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them. Now, that is not a prayer of uh, Father, I'm worried that you're going to forget about my people. I'm worried that you're going to slack off or fall asleep at the controls or your hand is going to get slippery and sweaty and you're going to let go of believers. That's not what he's praying. Nobody's praying at all. He's praying that we would be strengthened so that we continue to walk with him. It's not that God is going to forget about us or lose us, but right, we can drift. We can walk away. We can be lukewarm. We can be distracted. We can be all sorts of things. And Jesus is praying against that for us because he wants us to be steadfast. Listen to me. Your life as a Christian will not be perfect. How many of you know that? Bad things are gonna happen to you. And sometimes we feel like, oh, the wind is in my sails and I'm really close to God and that's awesome. Sometimes you're gonna be in the valley and you're gonna feel like, where is God? Where is he? Why can't I hear him speak? Why does he feel so distant? That, that's part of the human experience. But listen to me, particularly in the struggles and in the dips, I actually sensed the Lord this week telling me, he wanted me to say this to you guys because this is for somebody. If you're struggling in your walk, don't give up. Don't give up. See, because the enemy will try to convince you to give up. All this Jesus stuff, look where it's gotten you. Right, you actually believe this stuff? Come on, what's wrong with you? Just give it up. That's what the enemy tells you to do. But then Jesus prayed that we'd be kept in his name. Don't give up. Keep walking, keep pushing forward, keep pursuing Jesus, even if every fiber of your being is trying to suggest otherwise to you. You know the truth. You know that you need him. Don't give up. And I will say this for your encouragement. Sometimes... It's that place of struggle. It's that place of doubt. It's that place of questions. It's that place where your faith maybe feels weak. Sometimes that's the exact place where God wants to meet you and give you a special grace in this season of your life. So don't give up. 
Don't give up. Keep walking with him. Number three, Jesus prayed for this for us. Oh, this is large. This one is large, large. Consider yourself warned. He prayed that we would be unified. Somebody say unified. That word unity is the state of being joined together as the whole. The state of being joined together as the whole. Now he's praying this for us as believers. Really, he's praying this for us as the church, joined together as a whole. Now, what that does not look like is, here's the church. You guys look great. Here's a few people in the group, and they're all united. They're all pulling the same direction. But the rest are just not, they're just kind of disengaged. That's not unity. It's also not we're all just doing our own thing and no one's paying any attention to each other. And yeah, we, we don't hate each other. We must be unified. No. Unity is not pulling the rope in two different directions. Unity is not just putting the rope down and say, you live your truth and I live mine. It's when we grab onto the rope together and all pull it in the same direction. All of us. That's what unity is. And that's what he's praying for here. And we have a target to aim at, which is neat. That's helpful. See it in verse 11 there. Jesus prays, Father, make them one even as we are one. That's large. That speaks to the fact that our God, we've talked about this, he exists one God in three parts, three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. They're all everlasting, eternal God. They've always existed before the foundation of the world, it says in our text. And they've all been in perfect harmony and unity and relationship with each other. That's a large thing to aim at, but that's our target. We're gonna drop the ball on that. We're gonna sometimes not be quite as harmonious in that, but that's our target. And God has grace for us when we stumble in that. But what God is calling us to in the church is a godly, Christ-like, Holy Spirit-filled unity. That's what he's doing. And it begins with us being united with God. See in verse 21 right there, it says that they also may be in us, Jesus prays to the Father. So we can't be unified as he's praying for us to be unified if we just remove God from the equation of the church. That is really annoying. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Let's try that. I don't know. We can't have unity in the church like Jesus is praying for if we just remove God from the equation. Oh, we'll just hang out. We love each other. We'll get along. We'll have a picnic. It'll be great. Yeah, you know what that is? That's a social club. That's not a church, right? God, it's, it's unity with God. It starts right there. We need to be a people who are walking with the Lord and, and, and a life of getting onto the heart of God and being on mission for God and being in relationship with God. That means we ought to be a people who are not in one minute and out the next. And I'm a Christian today and I don't know what I believe tomorrow. And I'm, and I'm on cloud nine and I reject God and I'm lukewarm, I'm hot and I'm cold. It, it's not like that. It's a life of pursuing Jesus more and more each day. Unity with God, because we can have that. And it also involves unity with each other. See, that's the fun part. See, God will never sin against you, but somebody up here in the house might sin against you. Somebody here might annoy you. Somebody might bother you. Not in our church, but like a different church, right? I'm talking to somebody. But Jesus prays it right there. Verse 22, he prays that we may be one, one with each other. That means, and we've talked about all of this, this means it's not, hey, you do your thing, I'll do mine. You're over there, I happen to not hate you. No, this is like we're in it together. 
We're walking with each other. We're involved in each other's lives. We're stepping in to meet the needs. All that stuff we've talked about. And we're working on that common goal together. The common goal is this. It actually ties in very nicely with the greatest commandment that Jesus gave in Scripture. He said the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. And when we rally around that, that is the pathway to unity in the church. That is the pathway. Now, something else it says about unity, and I find this remarkable, it affects our witness. When you and I and all of us are unified in the church, it affects what happens outside the church. Even if you think, no one's watching, no one has any idea about us, God says otherwise. He says in verse 21 that we would be one so that the world may believe that he sent me, that Jesus was sent by God. That blows my mind. Verse 23 is the same way, that when we're one, the world will believe and know the love that you had for me since the foundation of the world. I'm simply blown away by this. When we fight for unity in the church, don't just assume it. When you fight for unity in the church, the outside world takes notice. I'm sorry, maybe that didn't sink in. When we fight for unity in the church, it affects our witness outside the church. That's everything. That's huge. It's not, it's not even, oh, we're going to win them with our powerful online social media presence. No, there's nothing wrong with that. We're going to win the world with our outreach program. There's nothing wrong with that. No, what he's saying here, though, is we can have a hand in winning the world by the way that we get along in here together. That is so God. That so blows my mind. But here it is, here, yet again. So just notice that trend. When we're unified, stuff happens. When we are unified, stuff happens. The world notices and more. The Holy Spirit shows up. I'll just say this off the cuff. The Holy Spirit has been moving and stirring and active in our church lately. Anybody notice that? Amen to that, which I love, and God gets all the credit because I always say, I wish as church leaders we could just snap our fingers and make that happen. We can't. It comes, that's just God, right? But The Holy Spirit's doing that. I would submit to you, it's probably because the Lord is growing us in this area, in unity, which is awesome. He gets the credit. When we're unified, God is present. He's with us. Lives are changed. People change. Things happen. Like, do you guys want to see that in your church? Yes. Okay? The opposite is equally true, though. When we're not unified, the world is not going to notice. The world is not going to be one. The Holy Spirit is definitely less likely to show up. Lives are less likely to be changed. The presence of God is likely to not be as strong with us. And I don't want that at all. At all. So we need to just reject this idea of, I'm going to come into the church with my agenda. I'm going to come into the church with my ego. It's all about me. Everybody pay attention to me, serve me, go out of your way to make things convenient for me. That's not the path to unity. It's the path to disunity. And and even this too, there's a whole epidemic. I could rant on this, I won't. There's a whole epidemic of people leaving churches for terrible reasons, right? I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here, but, oh, someone offended me, so I left. Someone didn't say hi to me, so I left. I didn't like the music, so I left. Give me a break. Give our heads a shake. We gotta repent of that attitude. 
because we are called to unity and God will move through our unity. When we work on the common goal to love God and to love each other, God will show up and move. Amen? One other thing about unity before we move on. This does not mean total conformity, by the way. This does not mean that every one of us next week we got to show up in our uniforms. We're all going to wear the same thing, have the same haircut, talk the same, look the same, do the same stuff. Not necessarily. That's conformity. I'll give you an example of conformity. When my grandfather was a little kid, I remember him telling me he went to school and when they were learning how to write in school, he instinctively wrote with his left hand. How many of you are left-handed? wonder if that's average for a group this size. Anyway, I don't know. He wrote with his left hand, and the teacher would come by, whack, with a ruler, right on the wrist, every time he wrote with his left hand. and said, we don't write with our left hand around here. Literally beat it out of him, and so he started writing with his right hand. Who gives a rip what hand you write with? That's my question. But that's conformity. And all the years I knew my grandfather, he was right-handed because of that. That's not what we're called to in unity here. There's an expression that is an old, old expression. I believe it's attributed to St. Augustine who lived like 1,500 years ago or something like that. Maybe not quite that long, long time ago. And I know that this is present in the history of our church. This used to be said in our church, like even before my times There's this expression that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. So we do need to unite and kind of be conformed to the essential things. Like, who is God? Who is Jesus? He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. The scriptures are our final authority in matters of life and doctrine. All of that stuff, listen, there are hills that I would not die on, but those are all hills that I would die on. And I need you to know, as long as I'm standing right here, we are never going to come to a place as a church where we go, you know what, we're tired of talking about Jesus today. Let's talk about, I don't know, somebody else. Let's talk about some other God, so-called God. Or let's, you know, the Bible, I don't know, it's kind of outdated and boring. Let's use some other book. They all pretty much say the same thing. No, no. We need to be united around that stuff for sure. We need to agree on that stuff. But outside of that, there's a lot of things that we might not express or say exactly the same way. For instance, oh, two Christians could read the creation account in Genesis and say, one person could say that was a a literal six days it's talking about. And someone else could read it and go, no, that's a figurative six days. Do your research, do your homework. And if you come on to a different conclusion, that's okay. There's a lot of things in the Bible like that. And that's great. Matter of fact, I would submit to you this. It's actually a good thing that we might not agree on every little non-essential thing. You say, well, why? Isn't that where conflict might come in? Yes, if you're arrogant and you're a jerk, that might be what happens. If you come up in here and say, hey, my conclusion on this non-essential matter, that's the way that it is. Oh, you think differently? Well, you're obviously an idiot. And you should listen to me because you're not very smart. Okay, yes, conflict will come for that. You might get punched in the face if you're like that, okay? But, but when we have our differences in non-essential things, it can bring a diversity to the church. It can bring a richness to the church. It can actually help you get out of your own little bubble and your own little world where you only think of, you know, yourself and here's my perspective. You can actually put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about what they're telling you. 
can actually humble you. So this is good. All of these things are good. But the point is this, the path to unity, which Jesus is praying for, for us in 2023, the path to unity is when we choose to embrace someone else in spite of our difference on our non-essential things and work toward the goal, which is to love Jesus and love other people. Does that make sense? And Jesus says clearly, when we do that, when we are united, when we are joined together as the whole, when we rally around the essentials and love each other in spite of the differences on the non-essentials, we are blessed and the world is blessed. That would be a good spot for an amen. That's unity. I got to move on like 10 minutes ago from that one. But anyway, here we are. Jesus prayed, number four, that we would know true joy. Jesus prayed for you that you would know what joy is, true joy. He says in verse 13, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. You guys know about joy. It's that deep abiding vitality. It's something that rises up within you and it gives you a little pep in your step and your heart is full. Even if your circumstances are bad, you can still be joyful. And true joy, you need to know where it comes from. It comes when you're connected to the Lord. Proverbs 16, 11 says this, in his presence there is fullness of joy. How much joy? Fullness of joy. In his presence. So when we get with him and walk with him and set our eyes on him, that joy is going to rub off on us. Joy is not the same as happiness, as you know. Happiness is something that comes based on your external circumstances. Hey, when X, Y, Z went well in my life, I was happy. But then when my circumstances were bad, I was bad. That's not what Jesus is calling you to. Matter of fact, Jesus tells us, in this world, you're going to have trouble. We read that last week, John 16, 33. It's gonna be hard some days. You can't always be happy, but it is possible for you to always be joyful because of the Holy Spirit in you, because God is the God of joy. In his presence, there's fullness of it. No wonder that's one of the fruit of the Spirit, right? When we walk in step with the Spirit, we're filled with joy. It's great. Jesus is praying for you. And if you're not feeling the joy this morning, I suspect this one is for you specifically. Jesus is praying for you to be filled with joy in your life. Even when your life is miserable, even when the world burns around you, you can still be good. Thumbs up on that one? Okay, next one. Number five, Jesus prays, we'll hammer through these. Jesus prayed that we would be kept from the evil one. Somebody say the evil one. That's talking about Satan. He prays that in verse 15. He says, keep them from the evil one. That's where I got that. You see the creative connection there. He prays for Satan to be denied certain access to us, which is really cool. Jesus prays essentially for like a hedge of protection around us, which is awesome. Yes, you're still gonna be tempted. Satan will still try to influence you, but Jesus is praying here with this hedge of protection that, hey, when we're walking with him... We won't be able to be destroyed by the devil. Now, of course, we can still foolishly step outside the hedge of protection. We can choose that. That's what Judas did a few chapters ago. And you can make yourself vulnerable to all the things that Satan might throw at you. You can choose to do that. That'd be like not a very smart choice, but we all do that sometimes. But what Jesus is saying here is as long as we are walking with him, abiding in him, holding on to him, being close to him, 
It's not possible for Satan to come in and just snatch you away. Oh, Jesus, you're pretty strong, but Satan's stronger, and he just ripped me out of your hand. No, it's not how it works. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Satan can't just rip you away from him. I love that. That's for somebody today. Number six is this. Jesus prayed that we would be effective witnesses. Oh, boy. You can see it in this language on the screen there. I do not ask that you take them, them, us, out of the world. Some days it would be great to be taken out of the world because the world is this horribly hard place sometimes. But Jesus says, that's not what I'm doing. He says, they, us, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And look at verse 18. This one is just so crucial. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I think it's really easy in our faith to have kind of the drawbridge mentality. I'm just going to retreat into my castle. I'm going to put the drawbridge up. We'll hang out in our nice comfy churches and we'll have our nice services and it's very safe and it's very comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with this at all, by the way. We need this. But we get it into our minds that, well, the world's out there and let's see if I care. Ouch. Does that look like what Jesus is saying to us? No. Matter of fact, Jesus himself, I'll remind you, came into your mess. He didn't have to come. He chose to come. He could have looked out from his ivory tower and gone, nope, I'm good. I'm good. I'm out. They're a hot mess. But he chose to humble himself to come and to serve us. And he gave his life for us. Do we think we're better than Jesus, man? When we take on that attitude of, and I don't know, like none of us would ever say this, probably, but sometimes we internalize it. I don't really care about lost people. People are lost. They don't know Jesus. They're literally going to hell. I'm not gonna do anything about it. You're not gonna catch me opening my mouth. You're not gonna catch me building a bridge. You're not gonna catch me doing anything. How dare we think that? How dare we? That is an attitude to be repented of. And I've had that. Maybe you've had it too. Jesus is not calling you to just hide away in your comfortable... He's calling us now. He's not calling you to hide away in your comfortable church building. And there, I went on Sunday and check off the box. He's calling you to be a kingdom agent in the world. You have a message to share. You have a God to reflect and point people to who need to know him. And you have the words of eternal life. And are you not going to give it to people? Come on. Come on now. We got to grow into this, people. Because you all, we all know people who need this. And who God is leading us and probably giving us the opportunities to speak to. We got to rise up. We got to grow in this. We got to step into this. Because he is sending us into the world. He's sending you. And yes, you can do it. Yes, you can speak this. Yes, you can model this. Because you have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. Of course you can do this. You get that. I've harped on that one long enough. Number seven, I got three more to go. You guys are doing great. Number seven is this. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified. Somebody say sanctified. Sanctified. That is a word that means it's the act or the process of making something holy. In our context, it's the act or process of being made more like Jesus, the Holy One. 
That's sanctification. So first in our lives, we need to be justified. The Bible uses that language. You need to be saved from your sin. But once you're saved from your sin, how many of you know you're not done yet? You're not done growing yet. Matter of fact, you're just beginning. And you've got the whole rest of your life that we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's praying for right here. And I love this. He says, sanctify them, us, in the truth. What does he say the truth is? Your word is truth. You know what he doesn't say? Your word is true, which it is. But he doesn't say this is true like it's one truth of many equally relevant truths, equally viable truths. This is the truth. The truth. This is a living word of God. And when you immerse yourself in this word, it does stuff in your life. It changes you. And you're like, how could it do that? It's just a book. Well, that's where you're wrong. It ain't just a book, friends. This is God's word. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says along here as well, he says in verse 19, I consecrate myself. That's a word that means dedicate. I offer myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Jesus gives his life. He sacrifices himself so that we could be freed and forgiven, so that we could come into relationship, so that we could start to grow to be more like him. That's what he's talking about. And he says the word does this in us. When you immerse yourself into this. I, uh, I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And a few years ago, some of us went to Florida, which was fun. And the house that we rented had a pool. And we spent many hours in the pool. Many hours. And a couple of my nieces have this bright blonde hair. And after many hours in the pool, their hair started to turn green which was, I thought was kind of cool. They did not find it quite as funny as I did. Starts to turn green. And they had to get that shampoo that gets the green out. Why did that happen? Because of what they were immersed in, right? They didn't look at the pool and go, oh yeah, this will just turn my hair green in it. Didn't maybe look like much, but that's what happened when they soaked in that and immersed in that. Well, in a positive light, that's what happens when we soak ourselves in the word. When you spend time in the word, you become like Jesus, who the word is about. And so the question, don't answer out loud, the question is this, who do you look like? Who are you growing to look like? Sometimes we can really be easily conforming to the pattern of this world. We can look a whole lot like the world because that's what we're immersed in. But when you immerse yourself, I promise you, when you immerse yourself in the word of God, you will change and you will change to be more like Jesus. Guess what? He prayed for that for you. In other words, he wants that to happen for you. Capiche? Two more to go. Jesus prayed, number eight, that we would know the love of God. We would know the love of God. Look at verse 26. He prays that the love with which you have loved me, Father, may be in them and I in them. Jesus wants us to know experientially and personally the love of God. You say, why does that matter? Why do I need to know what that matters? Because it changes us too. The love of God is, oh my land, how do I even describe it? It is so deeply impactful. It is so deeply empowering. It is so deeply life-altering. God loves you today. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. God cares about you. He loves you. Turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you. 
God loves you. And what happens is when the love of God is poured into our hearts, that's what it says in Romans 5, 5, it starts to overflow in us and it starts to change us. It's amazing. Some of you guys, that's your testimony. I've heard you say that. Yep, I, my, I, you know, I was even a Christian for like a number of years, but when I finally started to get a grip on the fact that God loved me and what that meant, that was the key that unlocked some of you guys. And I suspect that's the key that the Holy Spirit wants to use to unlock some of us today, even. Some of you are struggling in this area. I just speak the truth over you today. God loves you. And yes, that counts for something. Jesus wants us to know the love of God. And the last one, leave you with this for your encouragement. Jesus prays that we would be with him forever. Father, I desire, verse 24, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is a reminder of what's coming for us as believers. Again, this is not Jesus praying to the Father that, hey, I want to like bring these people to heaven. Make sure you don't forget, Father. No, that's not what he means. He's, he's praying this so we can be encouraged. Because in this life, it's hard to keep an eternal perspective sometimes, isn't it? especially when we're struggling and the mountain is right here. Jesus says, don't give up because the weight of glory that's coming for you, man, this here pales in comparison to what's gonna be. Heaven is gonna be great. Like the Bible talks about all these blessings and benefits and the streets are paved with gold and the weather's probably nice and that's awesome, awesome. And we actually get rewards in heaven as Christians, awesome. But the hallmark of heaven, the very best thing that we have to look forward to is to see him in his glory. Amen. We get glimpses of it here on the earth, but on that day, friend, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're gonna go and be with him and you are gonna look him in the eye upon his face. What a day that will be. That day is coming. So we gotta live like that day is coming. Press on, run the race well, because it will be so worth it in the end. Jesus prayed for all of these things for us. He wants these things to be enacted in our lives. He wants us to realize and recognize all of these things because he loves you and he has a life for you and he is extending the invitation for you for all of these things today. I want you to know all of those things we just talked about, those are possible in your life. The enemy says, no, they're not. Jesus says, yes, they are because I've made them possible because he's called us to this life. He's called us to this relationship. So we need to step into that. We need to put our faith that what he says is true. And then he's able to deliver on the goods, which he is.